All right, if you're new to Element, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables around the room, and they look like this. And on the front, you're going to get the verses we're going to go through. And inside, you're going to get a recap of what we will talk about today just a little bit. On the back side, you're going to get a place for notes. And most likely, you're going to jot down a whole lot of questions. About what we talk about today, if you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on More and then Events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smart device, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, and all that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Whoa. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for blessing and loving us the way that you do. And I ask that it would give us great strength and encouragement as we begin to live in and look at your call over us in our lives. That it would bring us to a place of comfort, a place of courage, be able to step out into this world knowing you are sovereign and hold all things in your hands, including us. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is week two of our journey through the New Testament book of election. I mean, Ephesians. It's Bible humor right there, because seriously, as I, here's my warning today. I was trying to find a way to ease you guys into this concept, like over a few weeks, kind of moving along to get us there. But I'm going to rip the bandaid off and we're just going to jump right in because that's where Paul goes. And what I want you to do is stick with me through this entire message because I will tell you, people have left element over the issue I'm going to talk to you about this morning. Our view on it, how we look at it. Please listen to everything I have to say before you leave and think of how important your decisions are in your own life. Uh, most of Paul's, boy, I'm going to be sarcastic today. Uh, most of Paul's letters start after an initial greeting. He will start to tell them, how he prays for these people. He will say, this is what I'm thinking about you. This is how I'm praying for you. Instead in Ephesians, what he will do is he will start off saying how God thinks about them, what God is doing in their lives, even when they don't even see it. Now, Paul's letter here, this verses 3 through 14, it's actually one long sentence in the Greek text. Someone's really excited about that. Uh, it's one long sentence in the Greek text. And what we do is we tend to break it up because you have to. And I'm going to do that for you. Today, we're going to talk about verses 3 through 6. Next week, we're going to talk about verses 3 through 10. And then the week after that, we're going to talk about verses 3 through 14 to put the whole thing together. But we're going to go piece by piece because I think we need to. Again, before Paul ever gets to his specific prayer for these people, he instead establishes the appropriate context for all Christian prayer, reflection, and exhortation. And it is the worship and adoration of the God who has lavished his love upon us. If you have a Bible, open to Ephesians chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles at Element, that is on page 634. And this is going to be Theology Day. It's like, I like History Day. Well, 
that's next week. This is Theology Day, and we're going to kind of run through this. Now, last week I gave you an overview of Paul's first journey when he goes into Ephesus. And it's very important to understand that as he starts to talk about the concepts he does today. Paul will go into Ephesus, and he will say, It is the true God who deserves our worship and our praise and our adoration. He is not the same God as the pagan gods in the city of Ephesus. He is not like those gods and goddesses. He is not just a divine force. He is not just a vague influence you can find at the end of a drug-induced stupor, at the end of a hash pipe. He's not something loosely known as the energy or the universe. He is the God who made the world. He is the God who made the universe, and he has made himself known in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And as far as Paul is concerned, any picture of God that does not have Jesus directly in the center of it is a distortion. It's a fabrication. So in Paul's entire prayer, this is how this kind of goes. What God has done in Jesus. Verse 3, he has blessed us in Christ with every blessing. Verse 4, he chose us in him. That's in Christ before the world was formed. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption in Christ. Verse 6, he poured out his grace on us in Jesus. Verse 7, he gave us redemption in him. That's in Christ. Verse 9, he set out his plan in him. That's in Christ. Verse 10, he sums up everything in Christ. Verse 11, we get an inheritance in Jesus. Verse 12, we only have a hope because it's set in Jesus. Verse 13, we have been sealed in him, in Christ, with God's spirit as a guarantee of what is to come. You think I talk about Jesus a lot? Paul talks about Jesus a lot, and that's what we're going to talk about. This is a bird's eye view of the whole divine plan of salvation, and Paul shows that everything that God has done, he has done in and through Jesus. There you go, Jesus. Paul will speak of us being in Christ. He will use the word king, the Messiah, and all these interchangeable ways to bring out its full meaning. Now, I told you last week in chapter 1, we see salvation here from God's point of view. Chapter 2, we see salvation from our point of view. Chapter 3 is going to kind of put those things together. Some commentators will call Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, the order of salvation, or they actually call it the ordo salutis because it sounds better in Latin, but I don't speak Latin, so whatever. The very first thing that Paul talks about is him choosing us then redeeming us by Christ's blood, then we're forgiven and adopted, then we're kept safe forever, then we're brought into glory. And it's really heavy stuff. And it can sound kind of esoteric and out there, so we want to bring it down in a way that we can understand it. Because it uh, is, in the end, so practical for our lives. And if you don't think these words can actually be practical, then you probably don't understand how Christianity works, and that's not a dig at you at all, because this is what the people in Ephesus needed to hear. It's what all of us need to hear at times, and this is why this book is so good for us. Chapter 2, as I said, looks at salvation from the human point of view, and instead of starting with God choosing us, forgiving us, redeeming us by Christ's blood, chapter 2 will start with us being dead in sin and our transgressions and how we need Jesus to come and rescue us. But both of these come together to show the concept of how faith develops. And it turns us into a people who can live these lives that honor God in every aspect of it because of God's empowerment by 
his spirit. But the main thrust of chapter one, you got to keep this in the back of your mind as we go through it, salvation from God's point of view. What has God done for us in, ab- in order to able us, enable us to live in all the good things that he has done? Verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It doesn't say you have earned these. It says you have been given these things. And that is a statement. It is so high and lofty and beautiful. It would change our lives if we really understand it. And if we don't understand it, it can almost kind of crush us. But here's the thing. Only in Christ do any real and true eternal blessings come. But all of them come because of Jesus. And the important part comes in verse 4 because he says, here's why they come. You want to know why they come? Because he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in him. Now, again, I was going to put this off until a few weeks, ease you guys into it just a little bit. But Paul starts here, so we got to start here. So let's do this. First, he chooses us. And I know right now you are having an aneurysm in your brain. You're going, what? I can't believe that. How dare God choose me? I mean, we are people who want to just think it's all about us and what we do and what we want. But this doctrine of God choosing us can be so beautiful if we just let ourselves experience it. Too often, what we want to do is rebel against the idea of God choosing because we have all these objections. You probably have some objections in your mind right now, like, well, what about this and what about that? Because we don't see election and say, wow, God loves me. I cannot believe how much God loves me that he would do this and bring me to himself. Instead, we say, but what about this? And what about this? And, and what about that? No, no BS. Can I say that? In ter- I didn't say the word, so I can say that. No, no BS. The doctrine of election and predestination is actually constant throughout not just this chapter in Ephesians, but it is constant throughout the entire Bible. And a lot of people try to avoid it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to work through all the ramifications of what that looks like. But as one commentator says, it's like trying to miss puddles on a rainy day. Eventually, you're going to get wet because it's going to hit you. And if we stop trying to fight it, you can see it is one of the most comforting things you can ever understand about who God is and our rescue. One person said it's like a piece of hard candy. You put a piece of hard candy in your mouth and you bite on it. It's like you feel like you're going to break your teeth. But if you just hold it there and start to work on it and massage it, eventually it becomes very, very sweet. Now, first off, I want to tell you, yes, you can be a Christian and not believe in election. It is okay. At Element, we hold this as an open-handed issue. As long as we believe in Christ, what he's done, his death on the cross, his resurrection, life given to us, that's closed-handed. Open-handed is this issue. At Element, you don't have to believe this, and you can still be part of our gospel communities. You can still volunteer around here. You can greet. You can do. You can be. You can pray for one another. You can do all of these things. So I want you to understand that first. So you don't have to. But I sometimes wonder why we wouldn't want to believe it if we really understand it. And I only start week two with this because it's central to our text and crucial for the Christian life. Election is the understanding that God called us before we ever looked to him. Verse four, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why are you a Christian? And some people will say, because I found Jesus. I chose the Lord. And from your perspective, that might be what it looks like. But think about what that is. Uh, I found Jesus. So Jesus is like a scoutmaster with a busted compass, wandering around the forest, doesn't know where he is. Thank God, Jesus, you found Jesus. 
because he'd have been lost forever if you didn't show up. No, what typically happens is that we are the ones who were lost and God shines a light and we're like, oh, Jesus. And we feel like I found you. And it's like, I, I was shining the light. You know, we're, we're in a pit in the very, but we can't see our way out. God shines the light. We're like, Jesus, God does this work. So we see who he is. Why are you a Christian? Because God calls. God does this work. God shines his light. Again, Ephesians 1, written from God's point of view. Paul is saying you chose him because he shined that light. We get the blessings that we do because he chose us. Our choosing is secondary to him shining that light into our lives. Why do we get the blessings from verse 3? We say from a human point of view, because I received Christ. Okay, great. Why did you receive Christ and other people haven't? Well, the answer is usually, well, I confess my sins. I confess my sins. Okay, great. Why did you admit your sins and other people haven't? Then the answer is, well, I humbled myself and other people didn't. Okay, great. Here comes the questions. Why did you humble yourself? I mean, do you see how this ultimately goes? As long as you make your choice, the ultimate reason you're a Christian, the real bottom line is why you're a follower of Jesus and other people aren't is because you're better. Well, I'm not better. I'm just more humble. Okay. Uh, no, no, no. You're smarter. I'm, I'm not smarter. There's nothing better about me. I was just willing. Well, you're more willing. You're, you're more something. There's a progression and it goes against what the scripture teaches. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, I was the least of the apostles, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Because we cannot make ourselves a Christian. And that's another way that Christianity differs from every religion on this planet. It is not one, this God, and everybody has their own roads up the mountain. No, Christianity is completely different. If you, you know, if you want to be a Buddhist, you follow the rules. You become a Buddhist. You make yourself a Buddhist. You want to be a Mormon. You follow the rules. You make yourself a Mormon. You want to be a Muslim. Here's how you do it. You follow the rules. Christianity is completely different. Do you want to be a Christian? Well, you know what? You don't even want that in your life until God has shined that light and opened your heart. And therefore, all pride and superiority are completely excluded. And this is why we become, should be, the most humble people on this planet. We are who we are by the grace of God alone. And if God's choice is an ultimate, then when you say, I'm saved by the grace of God alone, you don't actually mean it. What you mean is, I'm almost completely saved by the grace of God alone, but I did this little part over here. Paul says no. There are no qualifications we have that make us Christians. Our choice, secondary to God shining that light. And when we understand that, we become devastated by his grace. If someone asks you why you're a Christian, you don't have to hedge your bets. Well, you know, because you, what you say is, I'm a Christian and it's astonishing. I have no idea why. This is what God has done. Can you believe it? It's amazing. Okay, apparently you don't do that. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God and his absolute graciousness teaches us to go to a place where we have deep abiding joy. I have a friend that goes to a church in Sacramento right now. And every week before they go to communion, the church says, take communion knowing you are fully loved and fully known by Jesus. And he's talking to me about this. And he's like, I, I don't know if I fully know Jesus. I don't know if I fully love him. And I go, it's not about you. It's about what he has done. And he's like, oh. Okay, well, that, that, that's okay. See, why me? I don't, I don't know. There's no good reason in me at all. God is simply that good. Goes to the second thing. We are what we are by God's grace alone. Again, walk with me through the entire message. I'm going to get to some of your objections in just a moment. John 6, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
Now, the Greek word there for draw, it carries the connotation of a desperately hungry person looking for food. And this is what God does. He creates this hunger inside of us to know him. In John 3, Jesus says, you must be born again to see the kingdom, which means we can't even see the kingdom to want the kingdom unless God begins to open our hearts. Romans 8, 29 and 30 speaks of predestination and foreknowledge. Some say that God only sees the future. God knew our choices and therefore he predetermined we would be saved before the foundation of the world based upon our choice that he already saw. Okay, if, if we already made this choice, why predestine them? It becomes redundant. The word know in the Bible, it is not this intellectual word. It's a word about relationship. That God longs to know us as his people, even in places of judgment. In the book of Matthew, Jesus will say to some people, I never knew you. And that doesn't mean I never knew about you. It means I never had a relationship with you. To know someone in a personal way in the Bible is to have this deep personal relationship. When Paul says in Romans 8, those he foreknew, it doesn't mean he knew about. It means foreloved. From the foundation of the world, God has set his love upon you before time was even time god knew you and loved you and this is the beauty of this uh, why does this happen uh, deuteronomy 7 7 and 8 god says it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the lord set his love on you and chose you but it is because the lord loves you and that's the reason today we say i believe in the book of Acts, written by Luke, Paul gets done speaking in this one spot, Acts 13, 48, and it says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The word appointed means ordained. It doesn't say as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. It says as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And some people get all wound up in their heads about this. Well, what if I want to be a Christian and God's keeping me out? That's not how it works, okay? If, if you want to follow Jesus, you're there. That, that's, that's the call. If you believe, you're appointed. It's kind of like that rain I was talking about. Eventually, you're going to get soaked by it. It's going to hit you. It'll be all over you. So why do people want to avoid this idea? There's a few, and I'm sure you have a few reasons right now in your own head. I'm going to deal with a few of these. If you have more questions, you can write them down. You can send them to us. But I would appreciate you would hear this week, next week, and the week after, because they're all going to go together to bring this together. But first off, some people say, this means I have no free will. Now, free will is a really big deal for Americans. It's a really big deal in Western society. Free will means I choose what I want to do. That's free will. And if God chose me, doesn't that violate my choice? How dare he love me? It's violating my choice. Now, here's the thing to understand. Real free will is not something that anybody possesses. Every decision you make is contingent upon your life, your culture. Everything that you have gone through in your life informs how you make decisions. And that means your will is never completely free. You're always bound by everything else. Why do you get angry when somebody does this thing? Well, because of this. You are bound. You have the choice to get angry or not, but it's still... Uh, set within the culture you live in. Now, God stands outside of time, sees everything as a completed event. He has nothing that pushes on him. So God is the only one who has ultimate free will. But we think about this and we say, well, this would be like if a single guy walked up to a single girl at Element and said, I am an election type of dater and I have chosen you to be my wife. You did not choose me, but I chose you and I've ordained you to be my wife. That would end up in a restraining order, right? <laughs> 
Ladies, if a guy ever says that, run, call the police, all right? Uh, <laughs> but you say, isn't that what's actually happening right here? Like God forced us to love him. Like we're a mail order bride or something like that. So let me clear this up. This might make some of you Reformed people have a heart attack a bit as well. But I don't think that the Bible says a human being can't choose God. I think what it teaches is, is that a human being does not want to choose God. You're not incapable of choosing. You're incapable of wanting it. Romans 3 will say, no one seeks God. Romans 8 will say, unless God actually comes and does something in us, we will continue to be hostile towards God. Now, some people try to be very morally religious. And they're like, I will triumph all the Ten Commandments and do all these things. But every time we fail in our morality, it's when we want to take the mastery of our life back. We want to be in control. Uh, areas of forgiveness. You know, God calls you to forgive. I don't want to forgive that person. Reconciliation. Reach out to that person that has hurt you or that you hurt and begin to work. I don't want to do that. They're a, they're a mean jerk. We, we take our lives back, areas of grace. You say, oh, but I obey the Ten Commandments 90% of the time. I think you're lying if you say it, but what, let me just give that to you. The 10% that you do disobey is always around taking back mastery of our life. The purpose of obedience is to submit our life to the king. But God doesn't want just religious rule keepers. What does God want? God wants to know his people. God wants relationship with his people. And yet if you give a person a thousand choices, unless God opens the heart of that person, they will never come to him. So I'm going to give you this old example. You probably never heard it, but it's really old. But you have a lion and you put in front of a lion for breakfast, a bowl of Quaker oats and a bowl and, and then a thing of raw meat. Which one will the lion choose? This isn't a Disney movie where it's like, oh, I don't want meat anymore. I'm a lion. No, this is real life, right? <laughs> Quaker oats, raw meat. What's the lion going to choose? Every single time. You give him a thousand choices, every single time he will choose the meat. Zoologists will tell you that a lion can actually eat Quaker oats, but he never will. Why not? He doesn't want it. That's why. And that's like us. It doesn't mean the lion doesn't have free will. He's carnivorous. It's his nature to want the meat. It is our nature to rebel now and run from God because of the sin that is in our life. And when the Bible says we only come because of his call, it doesn't mean you don't have free will. It doesn't. It means you don't want him and you can't want him unless he begins to do a work. And sometimes that's in people who are like three, five years old, 10 years old, 20 years old. I just was reading this thing about a guy who just became a believer, 70 years old. God calls his timing his way because he is good. Tim Keller once said, it's like a line of a bunch of people being blindfolded and they're walking down a ramp and dropping into a furnace and dying. And you walk up to each one and you're like, you have to stop walking into the furnace. Don't get on the plane to kill man. It's a cookbook. You're all going to be killed. Don't do this. And they say, somebody got that. Great. Okay. <laughs> and they say, that's ridiculous. We're on our way to Palm Springs for, for spring break. We can feel it getting warmer as we go. And the doctrine of God's ultimate choice is that God comes and he pulls the blindfold off. People are like, oh, what was I doing? Look at where I was walking. What was I thinking? Second thing is this. People will say it's unfair. And, and I get this. I, I really do. I, I think culturally in this idea, but if we don't understand God's sovereignty, God's character, who he is, if we think God is like a person, we will think he's unfair. But if we understand who he really is, we will never think he's unfair in how he saves us. And again, I think if we think this is unfair, we may not understand God's grace fully. 
Okay, eternal life is a gift. That means that as a Christian, we follow him. It's not because you've decided to adhere to certain beliefs and to move in the general direction of some morality. My dad is not a Christian. And my dad will say he is more Christian than the Christians he knows because he has this idea of what morality is supposed to be and he lives up to it even though he says he's not a Christian. But that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is that we are saved by grace. It's not about our morality. It's not about how smart we are. C.S. Lewis, who did not believe in the doctrine of election, still says in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, that when God came into his life, he said, I was decided upon. He said, I could do nothing but come when God came into my life. I'm like, how do you not believe in election if that's how you see it? Someone has grabbed you in your innermost being. That's your maker remaking you. The problem with it's not fair is why would God choose some people and not others? But it's actually not unfair. Listen, it's only unfair if everybody deserves it and God is keeping people out. But the truth is that no one deserves it. So here's another illustration. It's not mine. I stole it. All the good ones I steal. Uh, Pretend there are five people and they're friends of yours. If you don't have five friends, I said pretend. It's okay. They say, the economy is really, really bad, and I'm going to rob a bank to make ends meet. And you say, you can't do that. It's wrong. You're stealing money from people. You're not the government. You're not allowed to do that. Uh, So you go, ooh. So so you go, and you're like, don't rob rob the bank. Could go horribly wrong. So they don't listen to you. As they're getting into their cars to leave, you take a bat, you knock two of them out and tie them up. The other three then go off and rob the bank. It goes horribly wrong. A guard comes up with a gun. They have a gun. They shoot the guard. They get caught. They get arrested. They go to death row, and you go to see them, and they say to you, this wasn't fair. You didn't knock all of us out. If you took two of us, you had to take all of us. You know what? It's your fault that I'm here. Now, if this isn't like a a modern TV show or movie where the protagonist is like, oh, yeah, you're so smart. No, what you would say instead is, you're ridiculous. Two of you have me to thank, but the three of you have you and you alone to blame for what you did. You all deserve to be here. It wasn't unfair for me to take two of you. I wasn't obligated to take any of you. And God opening the eyes of some is simply grace. It is not unfair. The third thing people say is, if it's all predetermined, why do I have to do anything at all in my life? Like, this is called fatalism. I don't have to talk to anybody about Jesus because if they're elect, they're going to get it. It's as simple as that. But it's really not. Uh, When you read Romans 8, 9, and 10, all this goes together. God's call, we are speaking. God does all of these things, and it's really beautiful. And this is why, again, Ephesians 1, from God's point of view, not ours. So I read this story about this guy. He took his family out camping. And they go up into the woods, and it's like, you know, just an old, rustic cabin. And he takes his oldest son outside. It's like 14, 15 years old with him. And he says, we're going to chop this wood. Because if we don't chop this wood, it's going to get so cold, we could actually freeze and die. So I want you to cut the wood with me. Spends about a half an hour showing his son how to chop the wood. And he says, okay, now you do this, and I'm going to go into the house and do some other things. About half an hour later, he comes back, and his kid's just sitting there, hasn't chopped any wood. And his dad says, why didn't you chop the wood? And he said, Dad, look, I know if I don't chop the wood, you're going to cut it anyway. You're not going to let us freeze to death. I'm thinking, ooh, you've got to give this kid some incentive. What you got to do? <laughs> now, the guy says something that's tr- interesting. He says his son says, you won't let us die. Now, think about that. The only incentive this kid would have had is if he didn't have a dad who loved him. 
And if he thought, I might actually die. Well, if I might actually die, well, then I will start chopping the wood. The only incentive this kid had to actually do what his father asked him to do was a whole lot of fear. See, the incentive for us to live loving and following Jesus, we have a father who does love us. We have a father who has the skill, who knows how to do what needs to be done. He's not going to let us freeze and die. But he wants us to partner with him in the world and to grow us. We should not have the pressure of death or hell looming over us. I mean, if we say all these things are set, I don't have to do anything at all. Look, I think it's wonderful to know we are secure, that God has placed his love upon us. But the reason we live a life telling other people about the goodness and the grace of Jesus is we want to please him. We want to live with him. If we lose all insert, uh, all. Uh, incentive because of God's sovereignty in our lives, then we are not serving God out of love. And we certainly don't understand his sovereignty. If our security causes us to honor God less, that means we do not understand God's sovereignty or God's grace. Now, here's the big one. The real problem comes down to this. Why doesn't God just save everybody? Want to know my deeply theological answer? I don't know. (laughs) There you go. I don't know. I do believe that there will be many more people saved than we could ever imagine. People you would think, that person's completely lost. I think there will be people who will be surprised that God steps in and brings them to himself because it's based upon him. But again, I don't know. And if your answer is just, I don't believe this election stuff, well, what's your answer? Because you have the same problem. Do you believe God wants everybody to, say, everybody to be saved? Well, well, yes. Well, why doesn't he? Here's the other side's answer. God doesn't want to violate anybody's free will. And here we are. We're back to it again. What's the big deal about this free will thing? I mean, why not insult somebody and then save them for eternity? Because if God's reason for people to go to hell is he doesn't want to offend them, that's a stupid reason. You can't say stupid in church. I just did because it is stupid. The truth is God has a reason and it's not stupid. It's not. But you and I don't know what it is. He has a reason. He chooses the way that he does. And it is never because we are better. It is all grace. Too often what we try to do is separate this doctrine of election and look at it as if God is a human being who could or would ever be unfair. Guys, we can never divorce this doctrine from who God is in his character. So really the question has to come down to what do you view God's character to be like? What do you view it to be like? For me, I want God in charge of salvation. I want him in charge of it. I don't want me in charge of it. Have you met me? And I certainly don't want you in charge of it because I've met you. I'm telling you, I want him in charge of it. Uh, I was talking to somebody yesterday whose daughter is angry at God, walked away because her grandfather died and wasn't a believer. And she says, I can't believe that, that God would let this happen. He, he was such a good person. Here's the thing in that. One, you don't know. You don't know what God's doing and what God did in that person's heart. We only look at it from the outside and we say, that was a good person, therefore they deserve this thing. And yet we're then centering salvation in ourselves of what we are going to define who is good. Because I'm sure someone else's grandpa wasn't nice to you as you walked out and didn't say hi as the greeter at the Walmart. Like, that guy goes to hell. I mean, we, we have all these things in our minds of why we think this or that. And we have to understand that in God's sovereignty, we can trust him to be good. 
You don't have to sit there and say, but what about and sit in all this fear and sadness and anger about maybe someone who has passed because it doesn't rest in your hands. It rests in God's. And we don't know what God is doing. And so we trust him in all things. And there is nothing more humbling and wonderful than this doctrine because there is nothing that makes us more secure. What is Paul saying to these people in Ephesus who had all these different gods and goddesses that they worshiped? He says, look, it's not about working hard. It's not about learning the right rituals and the right people. You are loved and saved because God chose to love and save you. You are in his sight as a child of his. And as a Christian, we can know a love like that. A Kathy Keller once said to Tim Keller, she said, The stars may fall from heaven, but his love for me will stand because his love is older than the stars and it will outlive the stars. And that is very liberating. It enables us to freely share the good news because ultimately it rests in God's hands. Oh, I didn't say it right. Oh, I didn't do it right. It's okay. God's spirit is good and powerful enough to do what he needs to do. We get freedom to live on mission in our lives by teaching unbelievers who Jesus is, by discipling one another and speaking about God's sovereignty and to serve the world through acts of love in response to God's great love first given to us. So you can actually begin to sleep easy. If you were here uh, last year, we did this thing called Element U. And in it, I talked about this missionary who went to Korea to try and help win some of these prostitutes who lived in very, very poor conditions. And so he starts to give them the conventional appeal of what Christianity is. And they wouldn't believe, they wouldn't come because they said, you don't understand what we've done. God couldn't possibly love us. We're terrible. So he does something that you don't typically do in America. He starts to talk about election. And he says, you know, you guys have a king or a ruler in your country, and they make decrees by fiat. And they said, well, yeah. And he said, okay. Do you know why some people come to Christ? And they said, why? And he says, because God in his mercy chooses and calls people. So the people who come to Christ, like me, it has nothing to do with my merits, me being good enough. The king has said, I want you. It's because of sheer love and grace. And the response in Korean, they said, you're kidding. Like, like how do we know if, if we are called? And they said, do you want it? And they said, yes, we do. And he goes, that means God's working in your heart. God's calling you to himself. Because the Bible says you're not even going to want him unless he's doing a work in your heart. If you want it, he's accepted you. He has called you. He has drawn you to himself. And by droves, these prostitutes started to come to trust in Christ because of his call over their life. That's the doctrine of grace, the doctrine of love. I think this is why Paul says, 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 29, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If you want to look at it from a funny point of view, you know, maybe there is a reason God chooses some over others. If anybody, if anything, it's, uh, we're dumber, we're more foolish, you know, we're just, we're the weak ones. Why? So the proud would see God is God. Salvation is by grace, not how good we are. Praise God if you have been unwise or foolish and that God has come and stepped into your life because real worship only happens when we understand this because our worship comes when we become liberated from ourselves. When we come to a place where we trust God to actually be God over our lives, over every circumstance, over everything that we are. We trust him to be who he is. And that can lead us to places of deep and intense comfort because you're no longer wondering, well, what happens tomorrow if, if I mess up or do this or I don't say that right? Well, guess what? God's grace still covers you. 
because it is him who has done the work and called you to himself. When we come to communion every single week, it's a reminder not of what you did. It's a reminder of what Christ did to bring us to himself. And so we come and you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken because he deemed to. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me so that we get to be adopted in. That God made a choice and called us and adopted us into his family. And so we get to live and walk with him. And I would encourage you today that, you know, we don't pass communion throughout the room, but if you get up and take communion, take it in a way that you just sit in the awe that God has loved you. And maybe the next time someone asks if you're a Christian, you go, yeah, and it's astounding. <laughs> Why me? It's so amazing. People be like, you're a weirdo. You're like, yeah, <laughs> I'm foolish, and God has chosen me because I'm weak, I guess. It's just great. You know, you get to live in knowing it's not about you. It's not about making yourself worthy enough for God to love you. It's about his grace spoken over you. If you need prayer, maybe you in your life have been in a spot where you, where you feel so unsure about God's love. Maybe you've been making decisions or living uh, in a way that you feel like God could just never love me. And yet you want this. You feel God's pull on your heart. Well, we'd love to be able to pray with you about that. Because you have to understand, God's desire is for us to love and live in relationship with Him. And He has done everything to make that possible. So we get to. And if you need prayer, we'd love to have you guys pray. If you guys would like to give, there's an offering box on the side of the wall. You can give online. We also do not pass a plate at Element. It's always a response to understanding God's great love first given to us. And so that's why we give the way that we do. Uh, and I would encourage you to grab those sermon notes again. If you have questions, I'm not saying there's not a million things in your head that you're going, what about, what about, what about? You can write those things down. And if I don't answer those in the next couple of weeks, send them to us. We, we'll, I'll answer them. We'll talk about we do this a leadership podcast every week, and we'll start dealing with some of those questions that are there if you, if you like us to. But really, just kind of start to, like that piece of hard candy, stick it in your mouth. Don't just <clears throat> break your teeth, but sit there and just start to feel around it and let it become sweet, the goodness and the grace of God, how wonderful he is. And then when you have all the questions, well, what about this person and that person? Trust that it's in God's hands because he is the one who is good. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we would come to a place and an understanding of your sovereignty and your goodness. That we would simply stand in awe because of your grace. That there would be a recognition of who you are and that you work all things for your good, for your glory. Because when you are most glorified, that is when your people live in the most joy. And so today, I ask that we would begin to live in that joy. The deep security that we have and who you are and what you have done. That we would understand that when we begin to love, it is only because we understand your love first given to us. And though this is something we say quite often, it is so true that all of our lives are meant to be lived in response to what you have first done. And so today I ask that we would just begin to take that hard truth and that it would start to become sweet. And that we would live 
this life we have glorifying and honoring you because we understand our security and our call and that we would want to know you the way that you have said you want to know us. And there would be deep, abiding relationship and deep and abiding joy because we have been saved by what you have done. It's not based upon our merits, not based upon our efforts, not based upon what family we are born into or how well we've done things. It rests in your grace. So teach us to live and walk in that grace. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen. So we kind of run through these songs. You know, I always say, ask God this question. I think maybe today, if you have a lot of questions around this, don't be afraid of the questions. Don't be like, well, I'm just going to believe it and stick my head in the sand, or I'm not going to believe it and stick my head in the sand. Look up. Start to work through some of those questions you may have either way. Ask God to reveal those to you. And then ask Him to just give you that deep sense of security, knowing that He is good. Knowing that He is not capricious like people. You don't know if He's going to be hot or cold today or tomorrow, but He is consistently good in His love over His people. And so we can step with security into this life. So ask him maybe those questions. God, what are the questions I'm afraid to even ask right now? What are the things I need to look at to trust you in each part of this? And then you have to take time to work through that. That's okay. That's okay. That's the beauty of how God grows us over the course of our entire life. It's not just a moment. It's a journey. Every day walking with him through the joys, through the struggles, through the questions, through the answers. So let's be those that walk with him, that come take communion, sing some songs, walk out into this world thoroughly confused today. (laughs) Walk out into this world knowing that you are loved and known by a God who knows everything about you. Things you've done, things you will do, things that you are embarrassed about, things that you want to hide. He knows that and chose to love you anyway and live in the security of that.